Good morning. Well, we have the privilege uh, to come together once again uh, as the people of God to, uh, uh, you know, learn from not only his word, but uh, also from the world around us. Um, this uh, Sunday school is an uh, interesting topic. Uh, it is interacting with today's moral culture. When I uh, delivered my survey on Christian ethics a couple of months ago, I did uh, promise this class as a follow-up, and uh, here we are a few months later because uh, really we've taken some, or I've taken some really winding journeys uh, through putting this lesson together, uh, so I hope it'll make sense. Uh, let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, uh, we ask that you would bless this time uh, that we have together. Bless us as we seek to understand uh, the world around us, um, seek to understand it in a way that will uh, help us to be compassionate to it, uh, but also to stand firmly in the truth that uh, you have given us and also um, to be bold speakers of uh, the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, like I said, uh, I, I really began to conceive of it as um, how, you know, some practical and uh, principles as to how to uh, interact in um, uh, certain you know, life circumstances, school and work, online, uh, that kind of thing. And, and I began to recognize as I read my way through all of this stuff that you cannot separate um, out a, a lesson on sexual ethics and on uh, sex and gender itself from uh, an interaction with today's moral culture because the two are so uh, wrapped together or um, are applied onto each other. It's, it's a, um, uh, it, it's, well, uh, vaguely disturbing, um, but it's also something I think that we need to interact with uh, because it is, frankly, uncomfortable. Um, so the first thing I wanted to talk about is the state of culture. Is, get, am I getting too much feedback on the mic? Is it? I, okay, okay. Um, so the state of culture, and the first thing I think that uh, we, we notice when we look at the, the current culture is the loss of cultural Christianity. And so I want to take a few, uh, you know, seconds to really talk about what, what is cultural Christianity. Um, this is the civil religion of the United States. This is the idea that on, on Sundays you wake up, you put on your suit, and you go to church. It um, doesn't matter what you do the rest of the week. Uh, that, you know, when you are a politician in the United States, you stand up and you pledge yourself to God and country. And that's regardless of political party, right? I mean, how many um, Democrats or Republicans are are routinely in, in the habit, uh, at least, you know, looking at ba back, you know, 40, 50 years ago of talking about God and country and, and God bless America and, and those sorts of things. So this is the civil religion of the United States, which can be seen going, you know, far back, as far back as the founding of the country. Now, how that Christianity was interpreted or was lived out uh, is differs from era to era and from state to state and person to person, but the unifying theme and the moral underpinnings of the United States were always Judeo-Christian values. 
um, the, the, this, this sort of like uh, came surging back in the 1980s with the silent majority, you remember. And so the, there was this idea that we were going, getting away from uh, cultural Christianity and we wanted to bring cr uh, Christianity back. And um, a lot of this, in, in my mind, is over-realized eschatology. Uh, this is a, a post-millennial view with America as the shining city on the hill, uh, the, the new Israel, um, uh, the, the really far uh, afield dispensationalist view of, of the United States. Um, but it is a prevalent view and, and one that if we examine ourselves is probably something that we have bought into at least a little bit, most of us. Um, so... I am guilty earlier on uh, of sort of celebrating this, of celebrating the, the loss of cultural Christianity for a couple of reasons. One uh, is that, you know, this is really the, a boost to gospel purity. If you are talking with somebody who has no, uh, you know, sort of um, moralistic, therapeutic, deistic uh, relationship to the church, they don't just go on Sundays and think they're good, this is, you know, justification by death, then really you, I think, have a, a much better um, chance of interacting with them meaningfully about the gospel, about, you know, the nature of sin, um, so on and so forth. Um, that, you know, I, I would rather an unchurched society than one where everyone attends church and believes that, you know, I'm, I went to church, so I'm going to heaven. Um, the, what, what uh, there's a particular author who talked about the, um, the loss of a moral ecosystem in the United States. So now uh, we, we no longer have um, this you know, a shared underpinning of morality. We don't have a, a shared definition of what morality is or what is moral and what is good. Um, now, there are lots of misuses of this. I, I mentioned a couple of them, you know, the political grandstanding, the Sunday church going, there are a lot of misuses of Christianity within that cultural Christian context. But for every misuse of Christianity, there's a lot of uh, you know, common grace that emanates from uh, society having a Christian underpinning. Um, justice, uh, dignity, human rights. Uh, the Christian members of parliament were the ones who abolished slavery in England. There was a great increase in evangelical membership in parliament right before uh, the Wilberforce movement sort of overtook parliament and, and abolished slavery in England. Uh, Catholic and Protestant members of the Supreme Court just sent abortion back to the states. So there's a, there, there is benefit in, um, in, the, uh, in a cultural Christianity. So uh, going back even further, the concept of hospitals and orphanages really arise from a Christian understanding of, of the dignity of human life. Uh, one author called losing cultural Christianity the Halloween of American society. And these are not, so I, I want to... Um, uh, th these are not coming from a post-millennial point of view. These, these, are, these are authors who are, are really interacting with what does a, what, what does a post-Christian America look like, you know, 20, 30 years on. Um, what does it look like 20, 30 years on? Now we're going to get to the favorite part of every Sunday school, which is statistics. 
So 13% of Americans reported starting or increasing substance use as a way of coping with the stress of the pandemic. Between 2007 and 2018, there was an increase of 60% between the ages of 10 and 24 in suicide rates. 60%. A lot of this is like truly um, uh, disturbing to me, and I, I wasn't aware of a lot of this. Um, falling marriage rates. Since 2000, marriage rates fell from eight for every thousand people to six for every thousand people in the United States. Um, in 2020, there were 55.8 births per you know, uh, childbearing age women, uh, a decline of 20%, 20% just from, from since 2007. Uh, these all coincide with what, what we lost in losing cultural Christianity was um, we, we lost our, our definition of well-being as having a spiritual component. So now well-being is purely material and whatever that materiality looks like, right? It could, could look like, uh, you know, a nice fancy car. It could look like a, you know, good friend set. It could look like uh, acceptance on Instagram. It is, it is a, uh, a, a purely material view and definition of well-being. And what has this led to? Uh, this has led to what, what is being called in, um, in uh, uh, academic research uh, as the loneliness epidemic that is facing uh, the United States. Young adults are twice as likely to be lonely than seniors. 79% of adults aged 18 to 24 report feeling lonely compared to 41% of seniors aged 66 and older. This is consistent with the you know, earlier research is what they're saying. And this is kind of like antithetical to the notion I think that we all grew up with of the lonely senior citizen sitting, you know, by him or herself in the, uh, the, the old folks home or, you know, go visit your grandparents. They're kind of lonely. Uh, this is the, the flip side of 18 to 24 year olds who like repeat, who are, are much, much more likely, almost 30% more likely to feel lonely than their, uh, their aged counterparts. More than twice as many younger adults as older adults experience feeling left out. More than two in five adults, 42% age 18 to 34, report always feeling left out, compared to just 16% people or 8 of people age 55 or older who say the same thing. Men and women have roughly the same likelihood of loneliness, which again is, you know, like varies wildly from you know, how, how we were, uh, I think, the, the common sense understanding of the world previously. Um, loneliness levels were equal to uh, the, the, the closing in 2019. Data showed a spike in loneliness among men, with 63% experiencing loneliness compared to 58% of women. So, what is this attributed to? Um, in part, it's attributed to, to social media access. So, those who uh, have 50 or more visits to social media per week. In, this increases the odds you will perceive social isolation by a factor of three, three times. So once you hit that 50 uh, visit mark, and that is what, uh, if, if you're doing it every day, somebody do the math for me, 50 divided by seven. Yeah, about seven visits a day. How many of us are guilty of that? Yeah, I'll, I'll raise my hand, just not on camera. 
Um, identity, so this is really, and now, now we're getting into the meat of it, um, this is a redefinition of common good. Identity is now related to sex, uh, sexual fulfillment. Uh, so thus, restrictions, calls, any kind of call for self-denial or moral restraint is hateful or oppressive. It's a personal attack on a person's identity. This is the idea that the self is the ultimate expression of being. And anyone seeking to restrict any aspect of that expression is hateful. With some even going so far as to say restrictions or even questions are violence. Words are violence. How many of us have heard that phrase recently? That's yeah, a new one. I, you know, only within the last probably five years, right? So referring to those alarming statistics on, on suicide above, there are many, many stories, and I think that we've maybe encountered them, of parents who were told by counselors and doctors that without gender-affirming um, health care, medication, surgeries, etc., that they will lose their child to suicide. A total affirmation, rejection of any kind of conservative sexual ethic. Uh, it is the repressive nature of conservative biblical sexual ethics that is responsible for teen angst and suicide. This is the popular view in the medical community, in a large part of the medical community today. So there's a, a pastor uh, out of England called Sam Alberry. Is anybody familiar with his work? Really interesting guy. Um, he uh, experiences same-sex attraction, uh, but he is, is celibate. Um, he is, this is a sin that he deals with, and his response to this is that, no, the problem is a culture that says your entire identity and sense of who you are is bound up with fulfilling your sexual desires. You are the ones who have raised the states that high so that the moment you don't fulfill your desires, you have nothing left to live for. Marriage, community participation, work, and raising children were once considered the benchmarks for fulfilling, um, for fulfillment, rather, and common good previously. So now it is the satisfaction of inner feelings and the acceptance and affirmation of those around you that is the benchmark of how well you're doing as a person and is the benchmark of fulfillment. And this has led to a new evangelism and you can see this all over the internet, uh, all over uh, the uh, you know, social media platforms. Um, Greg, if you could play the video. Everybody needs to be very quiet, I'm told. Today's my first day subbing in an elementary school rather than a preschool. And in preschool, you're just like teacher, your first name. But in elementary school, you're like Mr. or Mrs. Last Name. And so I've been trying to think and like decide what my teacher name is going to be. And I don't want to be Mrs. Last Name. Like I've never wanted to be Mrs. Last Name. So for a while, I thought like Ms. Last Name would be okay. But like, I don't know. I didn't love it. And then I was like, okay, how about Ms. H? Like Ms. H would be okay. But then last night I was thinking and I was, then I was like, Ms. H just gives like the vibes of like, a woman and that just and like that just doesn't and so i was like mix h like that just like mix h just sounds that like that just just and so now i'm having a gender crisis but i'm also not quite brave enough to introduce myself as mix h yet so Ms. h it is for now and apparently i need to update my pronouns okay bye 
Thank you. So, a couple of things are going on there. One is uh, to introduce a couple. <laughs> uh, one is to introduce middle schoolers uh, and previously preschoolers, you heard there, into the idea of uh, gender theory. Um, that we are, are not uh, connected biologically with our gender. Um, the second thing that's going on there is that she, well, I mean, why do you think she's making this video? Um, I, uh, sorry? She is potentially on speed, I suppose. I, 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 I don't think so. Uh, I, think, I think she's, uh, you know, um, she, she is very deeply insecure. I would say that, that is, that's accurate. Um, what she's looking for there is affirmation from the people around her. Right, so she's. If you if you look closely at the number of likes on that video, it's somewhere when it, when it was recorded there to be reposted because that's not the original post. I don't follow her on Instagram. Um, they're they're uh, approximately forty five hundred likes. So this is a person who is is desperately reaching out for affirmation uh, from the people around her because as we saw in the you know the the new definition of of common good, the new definition of fulfillment. Uh, this is what fulfillment is. Fulfillment is, you know, I'm, I'm affirmed in who I say I am uh, based on the folks around me. Um, the new evangelism, let's keep talking about that. Uh, about a year ago, we, uh, one of my daughters uh, brought to us a quiz that she'd received in school um, that uh, amongst other things, uh, you know, asked how you identify, uh, it asked, um, you know, what, who are you attracted to? Boys, girls, both. Um, it also asked, um, who do you like to hang out with? People who are younger than you, older than you. Um, and I thought that sorting kids by whether or not, by who they're attracted to, and also are they attracted to older people, um, to, in my mind, this is not appropriate. Uh, and I emailed the school a couple of times before they uh, before they pulled the survey down, um, and admitted that you know this is this was uh, it was it was an unsupervised um, uh, school club um, that was sponsored by a teacher that then sent this survey out, uh, and you, that there was no vetting of the survey through the school. Uh, there were now. Um, so I can't say that this was the official position that they would want to record uh, this for you know, middle schoolers um, uh, the, at the school, but certainly that club wanted to. And we'll, we'll get a little bit in, more into that and what that can lead to uh, in a little bit later. Let's talk about LGBTQ rates by generation. Um, Gen X, this is a very recent study, about one in 20 uh, Gen Xers identify somewhere uh, as LGBTQ. Um, millennials, it's about one in 10. So we're jumping from 5% to 10%. Now, Gen Z, which is anybody born after the year of like 2000, 2001-ish, uh, up until right about now, uh, one in five is now identifying somewhere within the, the LGBTQ Spectrum? Do you want to say? I don't. Like, I don't, I don't want to be. I don't, I don't want to be flippant about that. I, I didn't have a word for it though. But uh, somewhere within the the acronym of LGBTQIA plus. 
This has also led to uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is a uh, um, uh, a phenomenon that has been, you know, clinically studied over the last uh, couple of years in which friend groups of girls, when one uh, becomes, um, you know, when one identifies as uh, either non-binary or identifies as uh, a, uh, an, another gender, uh, that her friend group will rapidly uh, assume that as well. Um, now, What's interesting about this, and where, where, I'm, where I'm going with this, is that the, about 40, within this same study, about 40% of all of those folks, the Gen X, uh, the Millennials, the Gen Zs, who identify somewhere within that LGBTQ acronym, identify as religious, too. About 40%. So what does that, what does that mean exactly? Um, I don't know. It's something that I, I think that we, we have to uh, take into account. At the very least, they feel some desire for spirituality. And they feel some, some desire, some, some longing spiritually uh, that um, is you, you wildly, I think, disconnected from the way that they view the world. Um, public school teachers are now stalking students' Google searches in order to identify children who may have questions about their gender or sexuality. Because now we all know, and I think it's a good thing, that the public school, you know, or that your teachers will have access to your Google searches. Um, because, you know, there are lots of inappropriate Google searches that are not, you know, questions about gender and sexuality, right? Uh, there are uh, many opportunities for uh, middle school age boys to go off down rabbit trails that they shouldn't. Girls too. I'm not going to you know, suss out one or the other. Um, but uh, so I think it is, it is important for there to be the ability to flag. However, um, the California Teachers Association held a conference advising on surveillance of students' Google searches, internet activity, and hallway conversations in order to target sixth graders for personal invitations to uh, gender and sexuality alliance clubs, is what they call them, or associations, or alliances. This is a, um, the, it's an article uh, that includes actual material from this conference. So not, um, you know, uh, I, I think, um, what's the uh, right-wing witch hunting or uh, sort of hysteria? I, I don't think so, because I looked at some of the material, and it's, it's pretty alarming. Um, this second article is about a, a young girl, she was 12 at the time, who texted and emailed her parents to say that, you know, she's no longer a girl, that she's a boy now. And this, the, the parents, I think, providentially received this while they were at church, at a church function. Um, this is a, a faithful family, as far as I can tell. Uh, the, the article painted them in, in such a manner. Uh, and really, I'm pulling that out to say that those of us sitting here are not immune to any of this. Grace was invited to the GSA, again, that's the Gender and Sexuality Alliance Club, at her middle school. Grace began going to the weekly unsupervised lunchtime meetings, listening to other kids from her middle school and high school talk about sex, gender, and how they felt uncomfortable in their own bodies. Being a 12-year-old girl, Grace felt uncomfortable in her body, too. 
She didn't like the tights, the short shorts, and crop tops the other middle school girls were wearing. I believe strongly in modesty, she said. I started to associate womanhood with being sexualized. I wasn't even really thinking male versus female, but non-sexual versus sexual. It's just something to think about. So what, uh, what is all of this? It's uh, disquieting, it's disturbing, it's uncomfortable, but it hits yours and your kids and your grandkids' social media algorithms every day, all the time. It's the reality of the world we live in, and if the surveys are accurate, and I do believe that they are, a lot of this sort of worldview is, um, uh, is working its way into the church. So how do we deal with this? foundational texts for um, ethics discussions because you're going to have ethics discussions. You're going to have worldview discussions. It's the study of cosmology, right? How do you view the world? What is the makeup of the world? What's the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? Psalm 86, 8 through 1, or 8 through 13, rather. There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. So first... Remember that you are a people delivered. Your understanding of ethics and sexuality and identity is alien to you. Your ability to understand them is not something that is special about you. It's not something special about me. We are people who have known the steadfast love of God entirely through his grace and mercy and to our unmerited favor. So, What's the lesson there? Don't be overly haughty about knowing what you know. Engage with people with, in, in compassion, understanding that this, while, while she may come off as abrasive, th this woman in this video is seeking something. She is seeking identity. She is um, very insecure and desperately seeking the affirmation of the people around her. So calling from last week's sermon is the conversation that we're having, pleasing to God, is it for God's glory or is it for ours? Um, is its tone and tenor going to be uh, displeasing to God? Are motivations for having the conversation displeasing to God? I think we, we need to examine our, our motivations when we engage with this stuff. Um, first and foremost, we need to uh, examine our motivations when we are interacting with people online. It's very difficult to act, uh, interact with people online, I think, substantively, especially in you know, comments on Facebook or, or what have you, uh, and very much will quickly uh, devolve into uh, name-calling or ad hominem attacks or uh, will get into all sorts of um, uh, you know, logical fallacies pretty quickly. Uh, so I, I'd encourage, and this, you know, we'll, we'll probably do a social media uh, ethics class at some point, but I encourage everyone to really, really, really think before you post online. Comment, especially, or react. This is from Mark 7. 
Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Um, and you know, you can read through that. Uh, like I'll, I'll move on so you can save time for questions. So the general um, tone of that, uh, you know, back and forth between Jesus and the uh, Pharisees is that, you know, they are elevating tradition to the level of scripture. So what can we learn from that? One, search ourselves. Is the position that you're taking biblical? Or are the positions that you hold, or are they byproducts of that cultural Christianity that we talked about earlier? Uh, or are they simply our own opinions or preferences? And if they are opinions and preferences, they, you certainly cannot hold other people to them. Consider it, you know, the second thing that we can pull from that is to consider who we are aligning ourselves with. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, I was, you know, picturing myself there watching Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. And I was like, yeah, Jesus, go. But in all likelihood, I would have been standing on the other side, right? Without the grace and mercy of God, I would still be standing on the other side. So, I think that the transgender community has overplayed its hand. And I think that there will be a traditionalist backlash and reaction to it, and we're only just beginning to see it. And I think a lot of it is going to come from unchristian sources, and it is very likely not to be Christ-like in its delivery. So be careful who it is that we align ourselves with. I think if we're doing it right, we are likely to, in the coming years, uh, as this thing sorts itself out, be attacked by both sides. Be attacked as hateful for not being 100% affirming and be attacked as not being uh, upright enough uh, and uh, in, in our, uh, you know, attacks or in our uh, um, uh, sort of standing up against the transgender community, um, may, maybe like being a little bit more compassionate, being understanding, uh, this is something that I think we're called to, called to love our neighbors. And so if we're doing it right, we're going to get attacked by both sides. Um, the polarization of American civil life necessarily means that if you don't 100% affirm the view, you must be on the, of the opposing side. And I think we all see this online. I think we all see this in you know day-to-day -day conversations with uh, with folks. Um, and it's not just uh, on the left; certainly on the right as well. First Timothy 1:5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So here are several good indicators to look out for in your conversation. Love, purity, good conscience, and sincerity grounded in faith. A genuine, honest review of the transgender and LGBTQ cosmology is going to actually reveal some partial truths. People are desperate to belong. We are built for community. But as we discussed above in the loneliness epidemic, we are finding it increasingly less often. Number two, there is something unique about human sexuality. 
it is not solely an animalistic reproductive act. The issue is, as Albury pointed out above, that this movement has elevated the pursuit of that aspect to, of our lives to the apex of our identity. So rather than just defining our position in the negative, we must show people that there is so much more to being a human than just who you are attracted to. The Imago Dei extends to all people, and thus the complexity of the human experience does as well. The Bible really, really gets this. Jesus, who is the Word incarnate, was rejected by his hometown. Okay? He's not getting that affirmation that we're seeking from the people around us. He wept with Mary and Martha at the death of their brother, so he grieves over death, even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus. He discussed marital fidelity with the woman at the well, and he made wine to protect the dignity of a newly married couple. And on and on and on. So the next thing I want to talk about is expressive individualism. Is that a term that anybody has come across? So the purpose of life is self-reflection to uncover who you are, your identity, your deepest desires. You then look around for ways to express that to the world. So there are lots and lots of people who believe this who are not LGBTQ or transgender. Because of its pervasiveness in American society writ large, we must be careful not to let it crop up in the church. If we let it slide here on you know, different things, on just the, the way kind of you look at the world, but we apply it to sexuality, we are merely being arbitrary in application of biblical ethics. So talking to a friend's son about his friends, specifically about his gay friends, and I was asking him if he was able to share his faith with them. And this is an outgoing, gregarious young man who otherwise, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm using the word, uh, the phrase young man now, which uh, makes me feel very, very old. Um, who otherwise would not have an issue having conversations with anyone about virtually any topic, but he was very reticent to tell them, this is a quote, tell them they had to give up who they are. And it dawned on me as I was listening to a podcast this week that that is what Christ asks of everyone. We must all give up our sinful identities rebellious against God, and embrace a new identity, a new nature in Christ. John 12 says, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Underlying all of this, interacting with today's moral culture is really about interacting with the concept of self. That is who we are, what is our purpose, and I'll use the phrase again, what is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? Ultimately, the view of humanity at the core of this culture is very dehumanizing. It reduces the height of God's creation to our basest desires and what body parts do we want or not want. We must head, in this case, all the way back to Genesis 1 to show a higher view of, of humanity than the one that we find in the culture develop and deliver a succinct defense of the biblical view of humanity as created very good. 
Thus, in response to the idea that indulging in one's self-expression is the height of self, the Bible tells us, Luke 9, uh, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul says in Philippians 1, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The biblical response to the inward lived life is to deny the self. The more we leave ourselves behind and follow the heart of Christ, the more our true natures emerge. And interestingly, that's not to say to become more Christ-like is to become more alike. We become more the individuals that God created us to be when we exercise the gifts through the ministrations of the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. More individuals doing better things. So finally, I want to talk a little bit about the consequences. If we hold to this view, we are very, even with all compassion and love, we are very likely to still be seen as hateful. That we, we do our best to listen and to, to understand and to be compassionate and to like have a, a humble view of ourselves. We may lose friends, we may lose acquaintances, we may lose coworkers, we may lose jobs. Um, I become increasingly, uh, well, I used to work for a, a very progressive company um, and uh, you know, I would pray before I went up to platform or before I gave one of these Sunday schools that you know, if they were to be seen by somebody that I work with, uh, that they would be seen in the context in which they are offered, which is in love and in communication of the truth. Um, you know, I, I, I would be uh, reticent to call the, the company that I work for now progressive, but I'm still, you know, hey, this is, getting, this is going online. And it's being recorded, uh, and I have to be okay with that. I have to be okay with somebody pulling things from this Sunday school or from anything I say up there out of context and, and using that to, um, to attack my employment, which would attack my livelihood and my ability to provide for my, my wife and my kids. Um, but I think that that is where, in this conversation, we need to lean heavily on the sovereignty of God and lean heavily on the fact that if we are approaching this uh, with a heart of compassion, a heart of love for our neighbor, uh, and, uh, and a, um, you know, sort of like following after the heart of Christ in these conversations, um, that, you know, we, uh, God is sovereign, and he will put us through trials, but uh, ultimately they will be for the good of those who love him. That's all I got. Questions? In the back. Just throw the microphone, Greg. Um, oh, sorry, this is loud. <laughs> Hi, so I'm a social work major at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. This is something I see every day that I am there. We even um, struggle with this through ministry with InterVarsity because um, we're missionaries on campus and we're constantly reaching out to different groups of students including students who identify as LGBTQ plus um, 
So yeah, this has been an issue that we all have struggled with, even within our ministry. Like it's in the past, it's divided our leadership team because we've had students um, in our ministry who identify as um, LGBTQ plus and they were leaders, you um. know, so it just created this whole, you know, conflict. And in my social work classes, expressive individualism, that is actually something, that is a term that we've had to learn um, in my social work classes. And Would you agree with the definition that I gave? Um, wait, sorry, I forgot <laughs> what your definition that's okay, was. That's okay, <laughs> We'll talk about it later. I was just curious. But yeah, that is something that we had to learn. Um, and I remember a couple years ago in my, one of the social work classes um, I was taking, we had to do um, a presentation about our identity and who we are, basically. And there were many students who identified as, the, um, as LGBTQ+. Um, and we've had many like engaging discussions about that because this is like a huge topic, especially at UNLV. Like they're very big on, you know, supporting that community. And um, but in my social work classes, as we were talking about that, like there are chapters in our textbook that talk about that. And it got to the point where like. I was afraid to say like, hey, this is like against everything I believe. You know, like I was afraid to say, oh, like my identity is in Christ. You know, because we talked about identity a lot and like I hear the phrase like you can choose your own identity. Like my professors say that a lot. And for me, I can't, has say no you can't you know because that's like the complete opposite of what being a Christian is you know and um but I still said hey I'm a Christian you know because that's what I said in my presentation because that is my identity but I couldn't even engage in those types of discussions because it was all on the side of you know, supporting the LGBTQ plus. And the minute I opened up my mouth about something against it, I knew that I would be attacked. And like, I didn't know how many more of us that were Christians in my class. Like, I didn't know if I was the only one, you know? So I had to like restrain myself a lot of times that I like experienced, you know? And, um, I've had like friends who also identify in the LGBTQ plus community. And um, like I had a friend who was also in the social work program. I'm taking the same classes as her and she now identifies in mm. that. And I'm taking, as I'm taking those same classes, I'm more of like understanding like why she went in that route, if that makes sense. Because if you're not grounded in your faith, it's easy to fall into that, you know? So yeah, but, um, but she also wants to support them, but still be a Christian, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I, you know, it does. And, you know, I, growing up in a very different time, uh, I remember uh, gay jokes from the youth pastor 
uh, you know, fr from the, you know, it wasn't a pulpit, it was, you know, whatever, whatever we had in the fireside room. Um, and uh, so I think that we have done an absolutely awful job. Number one, we've separated uh, um, LGB especially into a separate category of sin. Uh, it's, it's a different category of sin because it's an EU sin, right? And that it's okay to make fun of. It's okay to make like, so all of those. Um, you know, w we've done a, a fairly terrible job, I think, of of reaching out over the years, um, and uh, ensuring that uh, that those folks understand that you know they are uh, loved uh, and that we are we have compassion for them. And I've known uh, gay couples with adopted children. I've known gay couples with children of their own. Um, I've known uh, lots, and and believe me, it, it it breaks my heart to think that that family would be separated if uh, uh, if one of them was was to you know suddenly embrace Christ. But like, does does that break my heart on a human level? Does it break my heart on a like? Where, why is that inside of me? What like it is? A, it's a compassion for the life's circumstances of people in sin. Just like it's a life, you know, it's a combat, like I'm, I'm also, uh, you know, deeply grieved for folks who su suffer from addiction or whatever, but it is, it's not a special category of sin. I think we have to be more and more aware of that. Uh, in the back. So this is something that as a Christian physician, we really struggle with, um, especially at Hope. And I, I think one of the problems is that the whole idea of, say, gender transformation assumes that the sole basis of our gender is our sexual desires and our reproductive organs. And there's so much more to the way the human is, body is made, male versus female, than just that. I mean, it, it's not like Mr. Potato Head. You can't just swap, you know, one set of parts for another. Um, it's, you know, the shape of the bones, the shape of the pelvis, the size and shape of the skull. I mean, that's why when they find a body in Lake Mead and all that's left is the bones, they can tell whether it's male or female, even though those organs are gone. Um, and the effect of those, of the, of the relative levels of hormones, like testosterone and progesterone and estrogen on the body. Um, and, and the, the thing that's, that, that's scary as a physician is that we're only beginning to learn what the health risks are of this too. That you take someone who, was, who is biologically male and give him a lot of estrogen. I mean, it's actually dangerous to give a woman too much estrogen or a man too much testosterone. And so, I, 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 like many conflicts we see now, I do think it does boil down to an oversimplification and actually a lack of recognition of expertise, you know, in these fields. Like, when I have a patient come to me and want to be referred for gender-transforming surgery, they see me as, like, the checkout person at Burger King. Hmm. I'm there just there to give them what they want. But at Hope, we have a, 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 a position statement of our own that aligns with CMDA, and we're like, no, we're gonna talk about why do you feel you need this to start with, and then we're gonna talk about all the medical and ethical reasons why I can't give you that referral. However, I'm still here for you. I'm still here to take care of your health needs. I'm here, whether if you decide to go somewhere else and get this surgery and come back, I'm still gonna take care of you because that's what God's called me to do. But I'm not going to um, send you down that road or, or, or push you down that road. Yeah. And so it, it's, I mean, and that doesn't even scratch the surface of people who are offering these hormones to children 
whose bodies and brains aren't even fully developed yet. So, you know, sometimes in conservative circles, people don't want to hear about science, but science is really on God's side yeah. for this. Um, and um, I had one more thing when I lost my train of thought, sorry. Well, they, we're, we're way over time anyway. Thank you, Susan, I appreciate that. Um, I think it's a great, uh, you know, to get the, the medical um, uh, aspect uh, there. Um, so, um, yeah, let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, please send us out this week uh, with a heart that follows Christ, a heart of compassion and love for our neighbors. Uh, help us to um, uh, understand our motivations and, and to align them with, uh, with your spirit. Uh, we pray for a um, wonderful and, and uh, edifying worship service now. Bless the pastor as he preaches. In Jesus' name, amen.